So here we are, Lord. It's what, one, two degree outside. People are freezing, literally. And we're sitting in a warm room, sipping hot drinks, being in your word, in this beautiful cafe, fellowshipping with the Almighty, with the Most High God. How good does it get? And you lavish upon us blessing after blessing, mercy after mercy, grace upon grace. And we eat it up so quickly sometimes we forget to even taste the goodness, to taste and see how good you are. But you've brought us in this season as we walk through Second Samuel to focus on the lordship issue, the kingship issue of the rightful king of David. Now granted, we can't go there forever, we know, because David's going to have some issues by 11. But here, we really get to watch some beautiful things as they apply to our lives, because clearly you're looking to do so much more than just be our biblical butler, but to be our Lord and to reinvent us and to carve us and shape us into your image the way you designed. And here we are, Lord, seeking that. We're learning, Lord, from our text how you never just take the land here, but rather you receive it as it's granted to you. <clears throat> and here, Lord, we see again what happens is we continue to make you more and more the king of our lives, the rightful king upon the throne where he belongs instead of us. So, Lord, teach us. Please. Teach us tonight. Captivate us in your word and redeem every second. Please. I love you, Lord, and I thank you so much. Thank you so much for what you're going to do tonight. May we have so much fun in your word, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. I would say tonight, as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be your authority. We've looked at David starting to take the throne. The rightful king taking his rightful throne. A son of promise. who now that the incumbent is disposed of, we start to see the trickles of his lineage try to face up. We will see focused on two different men that are called men tonight, Ishbosheth and Mephibosheth. Each of them having, of course, a different name, both, by the way, an essence of Saul's lineage. Ishbosheth being Saul's son, Mephibosheth being Saul's grandson through Jonathan. If we get through all of the text as intended, we will actually get to the point by the end of the night, David will actually officially be king over all of the Israeli empire. And to this day, he's considered one of the two greatest men that have ever lived amongst Judaism. The other, of course, being Moses. <clears throat> Matter of fact, there was a practically a fist fight 12 years ago in the primary synagogue in Jerusalem because there was an erudite, educated, traveling sage, if you will, who stepped in and actually said David sinned. And apparently people haven't read their Bibles because that just caused some people to go mental. Zitzits were flying everywhere. Hats and heads and hair and beards were flying and you know, punches were about to be drawn. It was a pretty crazy thing. And all of that to say, that's just how much they adulate King David. A lot of that will come to Second Samuel 7 and 8 when we see God's promise to which our own Messiah comes. And so, of course, spiritually we're in this lineage that way. Interesting, when we stand before God, the testimony is that you've made us kings and priests. Just a fantastic calling we get to do. So take a look at it with me now. And I pray that your life is like mine in this. 
that we are desiring to really let Jesus, the rightful King over all things, take the throne over every area of our lives. Not just the areas we don't like. One thing we learned about Saul was, when God spoke to him about Amalek, was that Saul was happy to eradicate all of the nasty stuff. But when it came down to the stuff that was nice, well, he kind of worked that for himself. Similar to a, a man named Achan, or we would say Achan, which he lived up to that name, uh, in the time of the book of Joshua when they went and took on the area of Jericho, when the man actually took a Babylonian garment and some gold and silver for himself. Like, where in the world is that man going to wear a Babylonian garment and no one's going to notice? Anyways, with all of that said, what's clear is just giving God your nasties does not bless God because he deserves to be Lord of all, not just the rubbish man. So here we are as the king takes not just Judah, which is the only tribe he's been king over for seven and a half years. There's still been this, if you will, this remnant, uh, renegade group of people that are still in opposition to David's rule. The leader, the commander, if you remember, of the, the renegade army, the, the rebel army, has been assassinated. Not at David's approval, certainly not at his command. And now we're going to see what happens as a result. Note the two people that are relatives of, of, uh, of Saul here and what they're kind of known for. First, chapter 4, verse 1. 2 Samuel 4, 1. When Saul's son heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost heart and all Israel was troubled. It's interesting to note that the term lost heart literally is that his hands became limp or feeble. And obviously the idea of it is, is when you kind of lose your courage, the fist that you would be waving now kind of just as hands hung down at the side. But if we were to put an emblem at this particular moment at Ishbosheth's life, we would see it as weak hands, limp hands. Don't miss that for what it's worth. Let's say it this way. When Saul's son heard that Abner had died in Hebron, his hands went limp, if you will, and all Israel was troubled. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of troops. The name of one was Baana. Try that. Baana. 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 It's like, isn't that what the minions say? Baana. Uh, it literally means a browbeater. In other words, the kind of person that would kind of just look at you and kind of berate you with their looks. Who names their son that? And the name of the other was Rechav. Try that. Rechav. Rechav literally means to jump on top of or a writer. So you got one guy that's named, one kid whose name is Browbeater, and the other one means a guy that'll ride you. I don't know. Sounds like rough kids. They're the sons of Rimon. Rimon, by the way, is a Syrian deity. It means marked off. Comes from a original word that means pomegranate. Of the children of Benjamin. Beeroth was also part of Benjamin. It was near Gibeon and Kirath Yerim, by the way. We'll see in Joshua 9, allotted to Benjamin. Because the Beerothites fled to Gitaim and have been sojourners there until this day. Now, Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son as well. Now, remember, so we have the first guy. Now, what would he be kind of known for? His sort of limp hands, if you will, at this moment. Now, Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son who was lame in his feet. So we have one son who has got limp hands, if you will, and another guy who has lame feet. You kind of got that. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Israel. And his nurse took him up and fled. As it happened, she made haste to flee. As she made haste to flee, that he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Try that. Mephibosheth. Come on now. This is Hebrew. You cannot say it like that. Mephibosheth. You're not saying a bad word. Don't worry. Mephibosheth, by the way, is really a very different name from Ishbosheth. Ishbosheth, remember, Ish means man. Ishbosheth means man of shame. Mephibosheth, because notice how they have the same ending, literally means a dispeller of, or one who blows away, shame. So you've got one guy, the man of shame, pretty rotten guy, and then on the, on the other side, of, in, in regards to his name, and then you have another guy that's like, one guy actually, if you will, represents shame, and another guy blows it away, removes it. And the idea comes from a word like to evaporate is the idea. 
I don't know about you, but if you were to pick one of those two by name alone, I think it would be easy to pick which one of those two would be your friend. He is also called, by the way, Merib Baal, which literally means a quarreler of Baal. In other words, it's a guy who would actually quarrel with Baal, if you will. In First Chronicles 8.34 and I think First Chronicles 9.40. Nonetheless, here we go. We have these two guys. I want to remind you, they're first two guys. Ba'ana and Rechav. Did you get that? Ba'ana, Rechav, browbeater and writer. Sons of a guy that was named after a Syrian deity. Now, we'll assume that that means that that was their, if you will, their age. Usually, if you will, the older aged first, uh, listed first. It says that in verse 4, Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son who was lame in his feet. He was five years old when the news of Saul, of Jonathan, came from Israel. His nurse took him up. He fled and it happened as she made haste to flee, that he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. Now, the sons of Ramon the Berathite, Rechav and Ba'ana, set out and came at, uh, came at about the heat of the day to the house of Ishbosheth while he was lying in his bed at noon. Now, did you notice, and it's kind of a subtle thing, but you can miss it, notice how they were listed in the first couple of verses and how they're listed in verse 5. Do you see a difference? In verse 2, it says, Ba'ana and Rechav. Here it says, Rechav and Ba'ana. Now, does that mean anything? More than likely, the way it's listed is by order of importance. That's why you usually list the older guy first. That's why, by the way, when you see the list of prophets, by the way, when you see Saul and Barnabas being called, Barnabas is listed first because he's probably the oldest guy and Saul was probably the youngest. Here, the more than likely, then why, why did they change the, the order of the names? More than likely, because it was probably the younger brother's idea. And usually God lists the guy again who's kind of got the spotlight first. Nonetheless, a little point, but nonetheless. They sat on came about the heat of the day to the house of Ishbosheth while he was lying on his bed at noon. Verse 6. And they came there all the way into the house as though they were going to get wheat. And they stabbed him in the stomach. Nechav and Ba'ana, his brother, escaped. For when they came into the house, he was lying on his bed in his bedroom. Then they struck him and they killed him, beheaded him and took his head and were all night escaping through the plain. Now, I don't know what kind of guard he has, but somewhere down the line, if you're carrying some guy's head through the kingdom somewhere, you know, through the palace, I would start to ask a question. How about you? Hey, uh, who's that looks a lot like the king. Where can I buy one of those? You know, it's a weird thing. Well, nonetheless, they, they kill the king. I remind you, this is the opposition to David. And then they spent all night escaping through the plain, verse 8. And they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said, Here's the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. And as the Lord has avenged my Lord, the king this day of Saul and his descendants. Now, how do you think David's going to respond to this? David's already got a track record, doesn't he? Remember when Saul was killed, or likely killed himself, and then in all of that, the Amalekite tried to take credit for it. David had the guy killed for it. So we already know as readers, we're reading this and we're thinking, you guys are so dumb, you have no idea what's about to happen to you. David answers, Rechab and Ba'ani, his brother, verse 9, the sons of Ramon the Berathite, and he said to them, As the Lord lives who has redeemed my life from all adversity. When someone told me, saying, look, Saul is dead. Thinking, that, uh, thinking to have brought good news, I arrested him and had him executed at Ziklag, the one who thought I would give him a reward for his news. Notice he doesn't say that the guy took credit for it, as if David really believed him. But he said, look, the guy, even just, the guy just tried to tell me, and he thought that somehow that would be good news to me. But that's not really the case. How much more when these wicked men have killed a righteous person in his own house, on his bed, therefore shall I not require his blood at your hand and remove you from the earth? So David commanded his young men, and they executed them. Don't worry, it's okay. They cut off their hands and feet and hanged them by the pool of Hebron in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner in Hebron. And this is the weird. Now, let's be honest. This is a bit of a weird chapter, isn't it? You can see why we're going to go through two. By the time we're done, the two guys that kill David's opponent, if you will have now not only been executed, but they've had their hands and their feet cut off. I find that really interesting because the two guys that were the sons of Saul in the chapter, one guy, if you will, by the, by the beginning, had limp hands, and by the other one, had lame feet. 
I don't know if there's a correlation. You can play that around all you want. But what's really clear in this is that David takes no delight in their death. Now, for what it's worth, I'd like to give you a couple verses about a key point in Scripture that somehow gets overlooked by some. In Ezekiel chapter 18.32, and Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11, God makes clear that he takes no delight in the death of the wicked. God did not jump up and yell whoopee when Hitler was killed. Nor Osama bin Laden, nor Saddam Hussein, but that does not mean that God has ever repealed his capital punishment from those who commit capital crimes. God has actually made clear there are certain crimes that are capital crimes. They deserve capital punishment. Why would God do that if he considered the sanctity of life so important? Don't miss this because people really get this twisted. Because God knows that if it was undeniable that a person was guilty of such a crime, that the crime, that the criminal would be executed, it was preventative for the next guy doing so. God knew that if in executing such an individual for such a heinous crime, that it would stop many others from committing that crime, God knew that he would actually be getting more life out of it than he would have just by letting the guy go. And God, though, even in the death of a wicked man, takes no delight. There is nowhere in Scripture that God just yells, whoopee. Now, by the way, when it talks about Satan in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, it says hell is excited about you, but it doesn't say God's excited to send you there. It tells us this in 1 Timothy 2, 4. It says that God desires all men to be saved. And the word desires there is a word that it means craves, or it's often translated will, or he wills. Because the word based in pleasure is the word thelema. Now, God is not going to get what he wants. But what God wants is all men saved. It tells us in Second Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, that God is not slack like some count slackness. In other words, God's not a slacker. But he is long suffering, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. That's what God really wants. And the reason why the Lord has not come back yet and raptured his church is because he would rather you give your life to him before that. So let me ask you something. If Jesus Christ had come back in the year 2000, how many of you here didn't know Jesus in the, by the year 2000? Let me just by a show of hands. Now take a look. To be honest, that's the vast majority of you. Aren't you thankful that he waited? He's not a slacker. He's long-suffering, which tells us that it's not like his waiting is pleasurable. To be long-suffering tells us that he is suffering to wait. But he did so because he'd rather you say yes to him before all that. And boy, am I thankful. And he doesn't want any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Will he get that? Of course not. But that doesn't mean he doesn't want it. And the whole point here is this, that David takes no delight in the death of these men, or the death, in this case, of Ishbosheth. Now, it is also important to recognize, if we look at the text, it seems to me that Ishbosheth never volunteered to become king. He never stepped forward and rallied up an army to do so. It says this in chapter 2, verse 8 of this book, 2 Samuel. Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him to Mahanaim, and he made him king there over Gilead, over the Asherites, over Israel, over Ephraim, over Benjamin, and over Israel. This was not Ishbosheth's coup, but it was Abner's. Abner had been a commander in Saul's army, and if Saul's family was to surrender to David's regime, if you will, if you think about it, Abner was out of a job. And you can see how this pretense is a lot of what we find during Jesus' day. 
where the idea of it is these men were in very high positions. They were in great honor. They were called rabbi and master. They were greeted in the marketplaces, given the best seats at concerts. They got front row for Phil Collins or whatever. You get that. That's where all of that was. You know, and they were handed the whole thing with the whole like Disney songs. I mean, it's amazing what they, they got. So understand, surrendering to Jesus you know, was doing a whole lot more at that point than just kind of humbling yourself for a moment and admitting he's the boss. Every area of their life was going to change. Now, truth be told, for all of us, that's the case. Some people just have the luxury of making it more clear and obvious in front of them. But please hear me in that. God for you and for me knows that every area of our life is, is going to be changed when the rightful king takes his rightful throne. There will be no area that won't be changed. By the way, there will be no area that won't be better because of it. So David clearly sees there is no there's no joy in that because it was God's job to do this. Now, now, please note, truth be told now, what's clear is there are loose cannons on both sides of this fence. On David's side, David's commander, Joab, by the way, winds up killing Abner, the commander of Saul's army. On the other side of it, there, you've got a couple guys within the kingdom, if you will, that wind up killing Saul's son, Ishbosheth. At this point now, who do we have remaining? Mephibosheth, the guy who's lame in his feet. And we're going to see one of the most beautiful stories about him and what David does with him by chapters 8 and 9, if you will. Chapter 5. Then the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron. At this point now, remember their king, Ishbosheth, has been murdered. And spoke, saying, Indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. Also, when times passed, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. And the Lord said to you, You shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over Israel. Therefore, all the elders of Israel came to the king of Hebron, at Hebron, and the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel. Now, note this. Where Ishbosheth, if you will, was a pawn playing a king in the chess game of Abner. Now, for the first time, David actually takes the throne of Israel and not just his tribe, the tribe of Judah. And because of that, what we start to see is what does it look like when the king finally gets it all? Do you get that? That's what we're looking at here. What would it look like in my life? Now understand, this is, I don't read this to teach. I read this for me to be changed. And I'm looking at this and going, Lord, I want you to be all in my life. What would that look like? And this is what I notice. In these first handful of verses, the first thing is that the people claim likeness with them. Did you notice that we are your bone and your flesh? Not just Judah here, but truth be told, all of us. We wanted you to know we are with you. We're family with you. We are likening ourselves to you. Interesting, a term that was used much like Adam used of Eve. This is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. In other words, there's this, I mean, in, and think about it, in Adam's case, this is a romantic issue between a husband and a wife. And the people are making the same claim we really haven't heard much between. There is this beautiful romance letting Jesus be the leader, or in this case, David be the king. But the first thing is like, look at I'm not just going to submit to you as a distant royalty. Now look at here. I don't know about you. I'm not related that I'm aware of to the queen or the family. I'm not a Windsor that I'm aware of in any way. I'm here and because they're the government in essence, we submit to their rules. We're told to do that. You know, Romans 14 makes really clear where to submit to the government and its authorities. I get that. Because of that, I don't expect a relationship with the queen. I just don't expect her to be antagonistic because, really, truth be told, I'm not in any way an opponent to her rule. And I look at this and I realize these people expected more from David than just for him to rule. They expected some form of relationship with him, some kind of likeness with him. I like that. I don't get that from Saul. The people didn't make that claim about Saul, but they certainly did about David. Second, they also recognized that all past victories were him anyways. You were the one who led us out and brought us in. I like that. They recognize it's like, you know, when I actually came to Christ, one of the first things I recognized was how many times I should have died before that, that Jesus protected me, even though I didn't know it was him. Any of you like that? That once you said yes to Jesus, God actually rolled film on moments in the, in the past that God kept you alive so you could say yes to him when you had the chance. Aren't you thankful? 
And then as I continued to grow, he did more than just show me how he saved my life. Sometimes how he just kept me out of a stupid situation that I, by choice, would have made. It's like, remember when you were planning on doing this thing, but I gave you that flat tire? Or that one time when you were going to go do this thing, but then you got horribly sick? Yeah, I did that. You know, and, and, and like back then, if God had said that, I would have been so angry because my mind was bent on something stupid and it was kind of obsessed with it for the moment. It's tunneling in my vision. And now I look back and I'm like, wow, am I thankful for the things that I could have done, for all the crazy things I did do. I mean, he let me jump off of cliffs and bungee jump and do all the kind of things that you can kind of say are, in, in essence, sort of little stripes in your own little personal, emotional scrapbook as you look back. But those are nothing compared to the stupid things I could have done that would have really destroyed me or the people around me. And I look back and I think, wow. You know, you were always the one who brought us in. You were always the one who took us out. Am I so thankful for that? He also recognized, did you notice, that he's the fulfillment of God's promise. They said, you know, look at this is what God did. This is what God promised us. The Lord said, you're going to be shepherd and you shall be ruler over Israel. God's made this promise and here you are. As I start to read scripture, I start to realize one of the many, many, many things that separates Jesus from everyone else is that Jesus was actually the one guy we should have expected to show up. When Muhammad showed up, there was no prophecy saying this guy was going to show up and this is what he was going to be like. The same with Buddha or Confucius or any of these guys. But Jesus had been prophesied for thousands of years to the very day, according to Daniel. Matter of fact, there was a chief inspector among the Scotland Yard who took the liberty of doing the math for the Daniel 9 prophecy about the coming forth and decree to rebuild Jerusalem to the day of the Mashiach Nagi, the Messiah, the Prince. And he did the math and came to the day that Jesus we know of as Palm Sunday. That's one of the things that just cemented his faith or turned him to Christ in it. Jesus says, you search the scriptures, thinking by them you possess eternal life. But they're the ones that testify of me. He says, I call, lo, I come in the volume of the book. In other words, I come on every page. I'm there on every page. You look, you'll see me there if you look. It's one of the reasons why I love going straight through Scripture. You should always, always, always expect this church to go straight through Scripture. It's one thing we're known for. Genesis to Revelation. We don't skip books. And let's be honest, some of you are around with Leviticus. Wasn't that an awesome walk through Leviticus? Aren't you glad we didn't skip that? I'm, I'm glad we didn't. And I just look at the reason I say that is, is that the people recognize that this king was not a step on, a walk on, and there he was. And all of a sudden he was playing for the team. This guy had been expected, obviously outside of the confines of the situation, the time, the space, or the matter. Clearly, a God that is outside of all of those things was showing us and leading us to Jesus. And finally, they recognize that he's not just to be the ruler. But let me ask you, here's a little challenge for you. Look in the scripture. It was promised that he would not just be the ruler over the people, but also what would he be? In times past, you were the one who led us out and brought us in. And the Lord said to you that you shall do this to my people Israel. What is it? Excellent. You shall shepherd why is that important? Because what they see with David is so much more than a despot, a tyrant, a ruler. They see a caretaker. Someone who actually knows his sheep, calls them by name, and they follow his voice. Isn't that what Jesus said? By the way, you're aware of the fact that a definite article is the word the. In other words, a definite article makes something so it's distinct. I could say, Bruno, you're a man. And we go, oh, congratulations. But if I were to say, Bruno, you're the man, well, that isolates him from everyone for some specific purpose or context. In Ezekiel chapter 34, God pronounces a judgment on the shepherds of Israel. It says that they feed the flock, they beat the flock, but what they don't do is care for them. So God says, in essence, here's your P34, you're fired. P45, you're fired. 
I'm going to go and shepherd the nation Israel. I'm going to do that now. I'm going to be the one that's going to be the proper shepherd. And the reason I say that is because when Jesus says in John 10, I am the good shepherd, not a good shepherd, but a definite article, I am the good shepherd, he's claiming to be God. Only God was the good shepherd, according to Ezekiel 34. And setting us up for both of those is David here, who is not only to be a ruler, but to shepherd God's people. To lead, guide, guard, love, and feed. That's what a shepherd does. He leads, he guides, he guards, he loves, he feeds. And as a pastor, you're probably aware, all a pastor is, is another word for shepherd. I take that very seriously. I pray for that every day. God, let me lead, guide, guard, love, and feed this flock. So as the king becomes ruler over all, as he gets it all, the people see themselves with him. They recognize that all victories were his anyways. They recognize he's a fulfillment of all promise and that he's not just to be ruler, but to be shepherd. And the king responds. And his response is beautiful and profound. Notice it now. It tells us, first of all, in verse 3, King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed him king over Israel. The first thing that David did is he didn't just get into a contract with them. He got into a covenant with them. Don't miss that. A contract and a covenant are radically different because a covenant demands relationship. A husband and wife don't just get into a contract. They get into a covenant. A father, when he adopts, doesn't get into a contract. He gets into a covenant. If you're to buy a car and you're going to pay money on it in installments, that's a contract, unless you bought the car from your dad. And even then, that could still be questionable. David does not get into a contract with the papal. He, papal. he gets into a covenant because David knows that he, as you say, be the king over all in, I, in my life too. Jesus then takes the throne, but as he takes the throne that is given him, he seeks to get into a covenant with me, not a contract. I am not a mindless number that is just an employee of a huge, infinitely sized governmental institution, I am actually a son adopted by that king in a love of Jesus Christ. That is radically different. Then he is anointed king. So David, it tells us, David made a covenant, verse 4, he was 30 years old when he began to reign and he reigned 40 years. It tells us at the end of verse 3 that he made a covenant with the people at Hebron before the Lord and then they anointed him. Then David was 30 years old when he began to reign and he reigned 40 years. Verse 5. And at Hebron he reigned over Judah seven years and six months and in Jerusalem he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. So we get the length of his reign. Verse 6 says, And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites. The inhabitants of the land who spoke to David, saying, You shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will repel you. You kind of get the idea they think David's no threat, don't you? We think, you know, you're such a wimp and you guys are such non-threat to us. We'll send the blind and the lame at you and that'll clearly take care of you. Thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion. Zion, that's the city of David. Zion, by the way, means permanent landmark. Pillar, capital, the idea. And David said on that day, whoever climbs up by the way of the water shaft and defeats the Yibusites, the lame and the blind, who are hated by David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. Therefore, they say, the blind and the lame shall not come into this house. Now, David doesn't just hate someone because they're blind. Don't miss that. It isn't like David's like, oh, you can't see. I hate you. How horrible would that be? But the point was, they were the icon of resistance. The resistance to David. And what David didn't want as king was that kind of resistance. That's what made David. That's what, and the same will happen with you. Whatever is the rebellious resistance inside of you, God declares war on because that land should be his. 
David dwelt in the stronghold. It tells, uh, David said, whoever takes it, by the way, shall be captain there. They said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. Verse 9. Then David dwelt in the stronghold, called it the city of David, and, dwelt, and bi- David built all around the millo, literally landfill and inward. And David went on and became great, and the Lord God of hosts with, with, was with him. Don't miss this. What's the first kingly act he does after getting into a covenant with the people? As he starts to centralize his kingdom. Don't miss this. This is really cool. See, David, the, David was one of the southern tribes. The, the tribe of Judah got some of the southernmost area of Israel. Now, David isn't gonna, can't move his property outside of Judean territory because he's going to have to take property that is Judah's for David to actually properly claim it. Otherwise, David's doing something really weird, and that he's claiming some other tribe's property for himself. David's from the tribe of Judah, but what David does do is he takes the very farthest north point, if you will, of Judean property, and he makes that his home. In other words, what David wants to do is he wants to take this whole thin strip, and instead of putting himself south here, he moves himself to the middle, if you will, so that he's close enough to everyone, and that's the point. Now, the, the area of Jerusalem is shaped a lot like a traditionally old house paintbrush, kind of a handle and then the big square thing on the top. That's almost exactly what, if you look at when they rebuild the temple uh, and, you know, in the re- re- reconstruction books like Nehemiah, Ezra, and Esther, what you'll find is that you'll see it looks a lot like that. Well, that, that whole handle area is what is called the city of David. And David takes that area and that is actually... Judean property, but the area north of that happens to be Benjamite territory. So when David takes that, what David says is, we're going to go, I mean, David wants to go and take the farthest area to be closest and to be the center of everything. But to do that, he actually has to go to battle in an area that hasn't been taken yet. So David says, it doesn't matter how hard this is going to be. This is how important this is to me. I am going to be at the center of this thing. And if I'm going to be at the center of this thing to be a proper governor, well, then if it's a battle they want, then it's a battle they're going to get. Because I am going to get that property because I, did, I should be. And we don't read David playing any entitlement games here. David, in love for the people, wants to be at the center. And can I say, this is the battle in every one of us. For the rest of my life... Jesus is going to be battling to become the center of it. He doesn't want to be a moon that orbits a cool planet that somehow orbits the sun that I've made myself to be. And if we're really going to be honest, we, we were raised, whether in a religious home or not, as us as the center of the universe. We look at a picture of 500 people and we're one of them. Who's the first person you look for? Do you wake up in the morning and going, Daniel Taylor, how do I bless that guy today? Now, usually in our house, it seems like everybody wakes up and the first thing they do is they just start to check and see how many body parts are still working. And then from there, they just start to decide what kind of day it's going to be. But nowhere in that do we normally wake up and go, oh, you know, I mean, on a good day, maybe (coughs) we'll wake up and go, Lord, what do you want? But still somehow I'm still trying to do this dance to get God into the center and to get me out of the center. And I love the fact that when the king finally gets it all, he's like, I want a relationship with you. And in that relationship, I want to be the center of your life. That's the way this relationship really thrives. Now, Jesus be the center of my past? Sure. Jesus be the center of my church life? Yeah, okay, that's cool, that's cool. Jesus be the center of my dreams? my ambitions, my value system, my identity, what I think is success, uh, those are a little bit of a harder dance, aren't they? They don't come naturally. They come supernaturally. And the king here is taking the center because that's where he belongs. It's interesting because he even built on the landfill. What that tells me is even the greatest rubbish can still be a platform for him if you lay it down before him. So what happens as a result of that? Two things. New allegiances are going to be formed with people who, by the way, want to see the king established and there'll be more fruitfulness. Let me say that again. That when the king gets it all and he really does get to become the center, 
new allegiances are formed, new relationships are formed with people who really want to see him established at the center and then more fruitfulness. Well, look how that looks. Verse 11. Then Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David in cedar trees. Imagine, you know, no bouquet of flowers for this guy. If you know anything about the cedars up in Lebanon, which is the area of Tyre, by the way, those things are roughly, you, many of them grow to the size where you can drive a lorry through the base of them. They've carved, in several cases, they've carved big, uh, <coughs> if you will, tunnels that you can drive your lorry through. I mean, that's how big these things get. So when he starts sending, I mean, imagine those logs showing up and you're like, wow, I have flowers would have been cool. But if you know anything, cedar smells really good. It's a citric smelling tree. Often people would build their drawers with cedar so that when you open them up, it kind of kept your sock drawer a little bit more nice. Well, Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees and carpenters and masons. And they built David a house. Now, did you notice David didn't do anything to ask for this? David didn't ask to become king. God did that. David didn't ask to kill Ishbosheth or Saul so he could get the kingdom. In essence, that was handed to him as well. And then David didn't even say, well, you know, now that I've got this Jerusalem place, I've got to build me a palace. Nothing like that. What you find is that God just raises up people. If you have to fight to get it, you have to fight to keep it. But when you walk in the grace of God, it is amazing what he does. He blesses you with a house. Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David, cedar trees, carpenters and masons. David didn't even have to build it. And they built David a house. Wouldn't you like that? Could you imagine if the queen was just like, by the way, Hugo, you've been so nice. And I mean, as a French guy, you still like us. I really appreciate that. You know, while we're at it, let me give you a little bit of property in Chelsea, and I'm going to build you a really nice little place. I don't think Hugo would go, no. Then, so, verse 12, David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel, and he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. Notice he didn't exalt his kingdom for the sake of himself. In other words, David knew that God had lifted up his kingdom so that he could bless Israel. Well, unfortunately, David's still human and David's going to make a couple mistakes. What we start to see is that still somehow leaves David wanting. And that tells me that at this moment, the whole, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, doesn't work out so well. It should be, right? It's the truth. But it tells us that David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem. Now, more concubines leads me to believe he had a few before this. And I remind you, that's somebody that you get all of the conjugal rights of, of wedding, of marriage, without any of the obligations and commitments of it, much like much of our culture today. And he took more of those and wives, and after he had come from Hebron, remember he had a six-pack of kids there, he's going to have 11 of them here. Also, more sons and daughters were born to David, that's what happens. And these were the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, Salomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nefeg, Yafia, Elishama, Eliada, and Eliphalet. Yeah. And I'm sure that now that you, now that in this last week, a week and a half, two babies have been born, we should have listed off these names, given them some options. Shemua, which by the way means renowned, comes from a word that means to grow numb. Uh, here's one for those of you who will still have children. Shobab, kind of, you know, it means rebellious. I don't think you want to name your kid that. Uh, Nathan, Nathaniel, Nathan, Nathan means gift. <coughs> Solomon means peaceful. Ibhar means choice. Elishua means the God of my riches or my God of my supplications. Nifeg means sprout, like hey little sprout. Uh, Yafia means bright or shining. Elishema means the God of hearing or my God is heard. Eliada means my God knows. And Eliphalet means my God is deliverance. Now, it still tells me that still somewhere in all of that, David has kids that he's naming that remind him who God is. That is a really good thing. We could build a whole lot more for it, but I want to say that much. 
Now, what we'll have in our last few verses, to be honest, I'll pull on next week because the cool part about that is it's two battles with the Philistines. And David is clearly listening on how to take on those on the Philistines. And he's going to let the, the Lord lead him. And we'll start talking about the battles that face us as we seek to make the Lord the center of our lives. Now, I want to go to prayer, but I want to make a couple points clear here as we do go to prayer. First of all, the King of Kings, Jesus the Christ, sent to die for our sins on the cross and raise again from the dead is the payment and ransom for all of our guilt, all of our shame. And we say yes to that. And usually we say yes to that again because what we really want is for Jesus to forgive us and save us. We don't want to go to hell. And that's only reasonable. But Jesus demands more and he demands to be king. And that becomes a lot harder. Because somewhere in all of that, we have to make the decision, is it a fair trade? Now, from the side of eternity, removed from our moment, this is the stupidest choice we'll ever have to make. Do I really want to hand Jesus my life and let him be the Lord over it? Or do I really want to just try to fit Jesus into my life comfortably right now? But it is a process for all of us. It's a process for David, and I believe that's one of the reasons he's taking all of these wives. Now, please hear me. Just because God lists it doesn't mean God endorses it. We're going to see that God clearly makes note of that. And this is going to be borne out even worse with Solomon. You really want to see a guy <coughs> who is not satisfied by bringing women into the house? That's Solomon. He's got a thousand gals. And then he writes the Song of Solomon. If you read the Song of Solomon, I mean, we really love to make it really mushy. And There we go. It's probably one less mouse, to be honest, in this place. It's probably chasing one right now. We really want to make it like, well, you know, it's like this king and he's in... Well, at least that's not distracting, huh? Oh, my goodness. Well, I hope they caught that burglar. We want to make it like God's in hot pursuit of us and we're this beautiful creature, you know, that the king is just... <coughs> really? Lord, will you get that thing off the roof, please? Amen. Thank you. We want to make it like God's in hot pursuit of us and we're this beautiful, cute thing. But if you read this Song of Solomon, that's not how it goes. To be honest, if we really want to put God into it, and I don't mean to make this irreverent and in no way blasphemous, he's more the girl in the story than the guy. Because the girl adores the king, chases after the king, can't seem to find him. She gets jumped, she gets beaten, she gets hurt, and she still keeps chasing after the guy anyways. His, you know, his legs are like pillars and all. She's just in love with this guy. and she's, It doesn't matter how much he gets beat up and abused. She is just going to get to that guy at any cost. Meanwhile, the guy kind of looks and is like, yeah, man, you're cute. And that's about it. It's like a rap video is basically what it is. And the, the whole reason I say that is, is that we try to make it something that's like, you know, oh, look how cool it is. God so loves us and all of that. But, but really, I want to remind you, Solomon wrote it as a king about a girl who's in love with the king. You can figure out that, right? And I started to go, what kind of king writes something about a girl who's gaga about the king and is willing to do anything to get to be with the king? Clearly a guy who's got some issues to work out. And it doesn't surprise me. That's in route to the book of Ecclesiastes where he's like, everything's meaningless now. Because somewhere before all of that, he was walking tight with God and everything had meaning. And he turns his eyes off of that and he tries to get satisfied somewhere else and it just doesn't work. And then he finds, then he gets to the place, it's like, what is the use of this? And I want to warn you, you start feasting at the table of the Lord like we are tonight. And then you try to find your satisfaction somewhere else. You're going to eat more and more and more and get full less and less and less and less. And somewhere in that, we become like, we get a lobotomy. You know, it's like we just keep thinking, well, that doesn't satisfy. I just have to do more of it or more and more versus the fact that when I was with the Lord, everything was, I was satisfied. I was content. And somehow we just keep thinking, if I could just get a little bit more of the world, maybe then I'll get what I got from God without having to work at it. Doesn't that just sound insane? Because it should. 
And David, we see a little bit of a battle going on here. And we recognize this battle is going to take David down. Because this battle ultimately is going to leave David in a place where he is, I mean, he's clearly already trespassing in areas he shouldn't. God is not endorsing this. But he's going to go way beyond this. To go on after a girl who is the wife of his bodyguard. Does that make any sense to any of you? How wise that would be? And the granddaughter of his chief counselor. That's strike two. And her name is daughter of a covenant. Strike three. That, any one of those should be more than enough to say... Yeah, the one guy that could get in your bedroom at night with a weapon in hand and no one stops him should not be the guy that you go after his wife. What do I know? In our text, what I want, though, for a moment here as we go to prayer is for us to be at this place where we could say, Lord, would you really be the Lord of my life? But to be the Lord of my life, to be the king over all, you need to be the center. You need to be so much more than just someone I refer to at times when I feel like I need it. You need to be the center of my life. Because when you are at the center of my life, you reach out with covenants. And then, as you become the center, a whole new set of allegiances and friendships are developed with people who really want to see him established. And then more fruitfulness. Isn't that what we want? We don't make Jesus that for the results. We make Jesus that because he deserves to be. Will you pray with me? So here we are, Lord, facing you. And we recognize even tonight, there's a lot going on, Lord, temptations and challenges all over the place. Even if those are not even just to do really bad things, but just to not do the best things. But tonight we recognize that's not what you want. What you really want is to be the center of our lives for our sake. To be at that place where in every way you are exalted and our life is blessed and changed and fruitful. For the old allegiances that really don't belong anymore, rip them out. For the man of shame in each of us, Cast them away. And it is time, Lord, for us to no longer be people that are handless and footless, but rather, Lord, give us a walk where we can walk with you and hands that will do. Because I recognize when I first came to you, all I wanted was to stop doing stuff, stop doing bad things, to stop running to evil. And you could have cut off my hands and feet and that would have been enough. But as I let you be the king of my life, the center where you become king of all, you give me a purpose to those hands and feet. Feet that will walk where you send me and hands that will do what you call me to, to build up your kingdom and not just tear down others. To walk to the needy and represent you as I should and bring life hope, love. So, tonight, we commit ourselves to you when we ask Jesus, we grant you the land of our lives and ask for you to park yourself in the center and become the very king of our universe, every area. And as you do, may our relationship with you erupt, blossom, flourish, thrive as we commit ourselves to you afresh and anew, even tonight. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for our sins so that you would be the Savior, the ransom, being buried that all of our sins could be buried forever and raised again to be our risen Lord, King of all. And we confess you as that tonight. Jesus, in your name. Amen.